Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look at the world of evidence, sometimes talking about COVID, but trying to cover some other topics of interest. Brought to you by BMJ's best EBM nerds. This week, we'll touch on the US Supreme Court decision on abortion, uh, Roe v. Wade, and consider the role that evidence might play in documenting how health is affected if abortion is no longer legal. I'll give you an update on the multitude of drugs that have been considered in the BMJ's first long-running living guideline on drugs to treat COVID from WHO. Do trials and observational studies of three drugs in COVID produce the same answer? We'll find out from Joe. And from tribalism of trialists and observational researchers, we will move to nationalism and ask how countries stack up when you compare their handling and outcomes of a common condition such as myocardial infarction. I'm Helen McDonald, Research Integrity Editor at BMJ, and I'm joined by Joe. Hi, Helen. This is Joe Ross, a Professor of Medicine and Public Health at Yale and the U.S. Outreach Editor uh, at the BMJ. And I'm also joined by Juan. Hi, I'm Juan. I'm a family doctor originally from Argentina and now living in Germany. And you're an editor-in-chief. Don't say yourself short. Yeah, I wanted to keep it short. (laughs) (laughs) And he's editor-in-chief of BMJ EBM, that's Evidence-Based Medicine. Let's start with the news. And Joe, can you bring us up to speed on the potential health consequences of this draft US Supreme Court decision on abortion? Because it's top of everyone's mind in the US and certainly we're hearing a lot about it over here. Can you give us like a little brief summary um, and tell us more about this interesting article that you found in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday? Thanks, Helen. Yeah. You know, I think everyone is shook uh, over in the United States now uh, at this draft opinion that came out of the Supreme Court earlier this month. While the writing has been on the wall in the past 20 years has represented the politicalization of abortion as a healthcare service. Um, and by writing on the wall, I mean to say, you know, when the Supreme Court took on this case, the expectation was that the conservative court was doing so in order to either severely limit the abortion rights of the United States that were granted under Roe v. Wade back in the 1970s, or completely reverse the decision, which would be unprecedented uh, and have massive ramifications for women and all individuals in the United States. Essentially, what the draft decision suggests is that um, abortion rights are not any longer going to be considered a constitutional right which means that the matter of whether a woman, a woman has uh, access to safe uh, reproductive care is going to be transferred down to the states. So each individual state is going to have its own rules and regulations. And the reason people are really shook up and so concerned is because individual states have also amplified the cultural wars in their own individual ways, suggesting that it the decisions that a physician might make for a woman or that we might make as a sort of public health decision are going to be severely curtailed, limited, and compromised. Current analyses suggest that if the draft decision goes forward, in more than a dozen states, abortions will immediately be illegal. And in many more states, they'll be 
curtailed in a way that will utterly confuse kind of what's allowed and what's not allowed. And that's why um, that article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was written by a Dr. Lisa Harris in Michigan was really so illustrative because as a woman and physician who provides uh, abortion services, she talked about how complicated it's going to be to operationalize the rule in Michigan that allows for abortions um, when it's life-preserving in the sense that Okay, if a woman is uh, severely critically ill in the ICU, ventilated, and uh, they're unable to to achieve sufficient, uh, um, you know, re- uh, respiratory care, and they prov- and they do an abortion at that stage, that's life preserving very critically, like very clearly. But what about if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy that's set to burst? Is that life-preserving to provide uh, an abortion in that, like, to, in that care? What if a woman has already had a miscarriage, but she's, um, you know, sev- experiencing severe intrauterine bleeding? Is is it legal then to provide a DNC as you know a sort of typical abortion care services? So things are just very confusing, very complicated, and the, of course the most worrisome thing is. It is so um, state-oriented that it's going to make it very difficult for women in certain portions of the country, particularly poor women, women of color, people in the South, to have access to reproductive health care that, that is needed. Uh, you know, just it's just you know smart and appropriate health care services. I didn't interrupt you there, Joe, because it was so so interesting and actually really thought-provoking to think about how how you would provide not just choice for people but also um as you say deal with um signs and symptoms of um complications with pregnancy or other healthcare related issues um and and the impact on that i had definitely not considered that kind of second category anywhere near as clearly uh juan i'm interested in your thoughts because you've been doing some work in this area um and and what this makes me think is if such a such sorry if if the um if the thing does pass and um states come up with different policies um around abortion and abortion care how might we use evidence to measure the impact of those changes um on health uh, t- tell us a bit about what it's like to try and do work in that area well, yeah, it's extremely complicated because uh, when you think about uh, abortion, you sometimes try to try to simplify which countries abortion is legal or illegal. But it's much more complicated than that because each of the countries may have different policies as to what they consider to be illegal. For example, what are the grounds for abortion? What are the requirements to access abortion if additional... As a matter of fact, now in the U.S., when you have Roe versus Wade as a sort of a, a, a wide understanding of that abortion might be legal, within the U.S., there are already so many restrictions in some, 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 of, the con, uh, some of the states about, for example, uh, the, the, the limits of gestational age, which make almost impossible, for example, in some of the states, it's six weeks, it's almost impossible for women to, to access abortion in a timely fashion. So um, that they directly diverge into unsafe abortion. So uh, yeah, on the evidence side, it's very difficult to summarize uh, and synthesize all the evidence. 
And from the outcomes, if you, if you look at the outcomes, it's also very complicated for two reasons. One is, um, at least two reasons. One is that if you look at maternal mortality, if you have a country in which abortion is illegal, then the worst outcomes attributable to abortion might be underreported because it's illegal uh, to report it, and therefore uh, there's, uh, there, there are biases in how the outcome is ascertained. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty complicated to, to, to summarize the evidence, but at the same time, something that we've been discussing uh, is, is how, how this, this evidence would play into the decision, the policy. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, Juan, it's, it's exactly right. I mean, it, it is complicated to try to summarize evidence but it, on the other hand, it's actually exceedingly simple in this case. Like we, we know that access to reproductive services leads to better health outcomes for women because um, abortion as a procedure is remarkably safe. Um, it, it, and, right, and when it needs to be used in later stage pregnancies, the, the, the sort of counterfactual, what will happen to women if they're forced to carry to term, the sort of health consequences, we know it's worse off for women uh, in terms of their, their health. And so it makes me very worried that the evidence, as hard as we're going to work to synthesize it, as much as we've tried to provide over the past 20 years or 50 years to provide clarity on why it, you know, these kind of safe reproductive health choices are, are required, um, you know, it's almost like it doesn't matter because it's become a political point, not a health point. And to the point now where, you know, politicians, as much as the those on the conservative right like to say that they don't uh, want anyone between their doctor and, a, you know, the doctor and the patient, they are actually inserting themselves as, as a politician, preventing physicians from providing the care women may need in, you know, when uh, when pregnant. And this actually is going about to come to an interesting and major head on the U.S. side, because um, for many years, we've known that access to uh, medical abortion through um, mifepristone and misoprostol, you know, the, the medications that can be used to induce an abortion are very safe, very ineffective. But, you know, the FDA's had its hands tied or by politicians' rules around access to the medication. Uh, but this may become the only way to provide access to care uh, in so many states that have now severely limited uh, access to abortion services like, you know, through, through DNC and other procedures. Yeah, so I guess it kind of feels like the way that evidence is being used in this debate um, or discussion is is quite a, a loose term, and as you say, Joe, it's it's become a, a political discussion about um, politics and ideology more than um, more than a rational discussion about the benefit and harm of this particular intervention. Yeah, no, no, that, that's exactly right. Which I think is we're all worse off. Women are worse off. Our civil society is worse off. Families are worse off uh, when decisions become politicized in this way. Well, next, I thought I would bring you up to speed on um, WHO's living guidance on COVID treatment drugs. And it's been quite a long time since we spoke about this and the emergence of living evidence back um, near the beginning of the pandemic. So I thought I'd just mention some of the, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so here's a rundown of what the key messages from the guidance currently are. 
So for people with severe and critical COVID, typically those people in hospital, if not uh, ICU, um, people with low oxygen saturation, severe respiratory distress, pneumonia, um, perhaps going as far then at the critical end as um, entering into acute respiratory distress syndrome or um, experiencing shock and requiring life-sustaining treatments. There are two strong recommendations at the moment, one for the use of um, steroids and on top of that then either for the use of an IL-6 blocker such as tocilizumab or cerilumab um, or for the use of an oral JAK inhibitor called baricitinib. For those people with non-severe COVID who basically don't have those signs and symptoms I mentioned before, most of them those, most of them are cared for out of hospital. Um, the latest recommendation in the guidance was a strong recommendation for nemaltrevir and ritonavir oral medications given together. And there are a number of weak recommendations for a variety of other drugs um, with various um, routes of administration and different mechanisms of action. And they include molnupiravir, sotrovimab, remdesivir, and casirivimab and indevimab, which are given together as well. So I don't know, Joe and Juan, whether that's a useful little telegraphic update for you to um, keep your keep your CPD points going there. <laughs> we call them CME. Uh, CME, in, in, sorry, in the, I should have uh, remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, of course, it's great that the, the team continues to update this review, which I think is probably the paragon of evidence to you know for treating patients today. I have a lot of questions, though, about what we should be doing in terms of, uh, you know, treating people early in the uh, early in their illnesses and what's most effective and, and safe. You know, there's obviously still recommendations for patients to get remdesivir or pa pa uh, Paxlovid, um, which is the brand name for the antiviral drug. And my, I, the reason I, I'm raising questions about it is because, you know, all of the evidence was generated at a time when people were unvaccinated. They hadn't received a two-dose vaccine. They hadn't received a booster shot. And it was all during the time of, uh, for the most part, of the Delta wave of infections. And now we're experiencing, um, you know, subsequent waves, various versions of Omicron. I think there's a little bit less certainty around, you know, whether patients would have the same um, sort of severe morbidity and mortality uh, when exposed uh, to this to this version of the virus, although others think that it's the same. It's just that everybody has had so many prior exposures. That point I, is interesting. I, I think it kind of gets to, uh, uh, shall I educate you today? Yeah, you should <laughs> the always of, educate of, me. Uh, of indirectness, doesn't it? Um, you know, how applicable was this evidence that was gathered at some other point in the pandemic now? And vaccination is, is definitely one very valid thing that I know the, the panel discuss. Um, other th issues have been variants, as you say, and there's also um, concerns around potential problems that could emerge, particularly with some of the antivirals when used as monotherapy, that that might promote resistance, as has been seen with other um, infectious diseases, such as in HIV now, where you typically receive a number of antivirals to prevent that from happening. So I think, I think there are very um, valid concerns around that. Yeah, I think the it, other I, tricky thing is the risk prediction. That's been another thing that's been a, a source of debate, particularly amongst the community sorry, particularly amongst the group of people with non-severe COVID. So these are the people typically out in the community, perhaps seeing a, a family doctor. Um, 
and all of the recommendations that apply to non-severe COVID in the guidance um, specify that they should be reserved only for those at the highest risk of admission into hospital. And that's where the evidence has been building because the outcome that's been important to the panel in making those recommendations has been preventing admission to hospital. So they're kind, they've kind of coalesced around the idea that um, it's worth um, giving these treatments to the people um, in the sort of highest 10%. But it's really difficult accurately to predict who those people are because so many things change on the ground, as you say, about vaccination and the variant. Um, and so what they've done, instead of saying, you know, you could feed your patient details into this fancy tool and then it will tell you how what, what the risk is, is to say really clinicians have to use their best judgment and they've picked out the elements of those risk prediction models which are kind of relatively con constant around things like age and multimorbidity um, and unvaccinated status so that you have to I suppose just behave like a normal doctor and make a yeah, but judgment the, call as to how, how risky you think the patient is. But the thing that drives me crazy is we're still at baseline feeding the sort of effect estimate expectations into that model that are derived from trials and unvaccinated adults. And so like this is just an example to me of the evidence world, the evidence generation world is not keeping up with what we need uh, in order to make informed decisions. So of course we want to uh, you know, reduce risk in, in, uh, of severe disease in the highest risk, especially the immune compromised, right? Um, but I know that the way it's been operationalized in the United States is, oh, I'm infected. Those people with better access to physicians, more money, can get to the right pharmacy, are the ones who are getting Paxlovid. Has nothing to do with risk, and we don't even know that it works. Um, mm. But I think you know, there are you know some me, really interesting- the cynic. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Joe, there are some interesting issues around equity. And I think in making the recommendations, the the, the guideline development um, group are very cognizant of that and, and do sort of signal to um, readers of the guideline that, you know, it is wealthier people and wealthier societies who are more likely um, to be using these drugs because it is wealthier people who can afford to get testing, can afford access to healthcare, can get to their doctor quickly. And so the use of these drugs is likely to, to favour um, people who may already have kind of better health outcomes in inverted commas. Um, and even setting that particular matter of equity aside, there are there are sort of things to consider um, when you're when you're choosing between the drugs and cost is one of those elements because a lot of them are uh, newer fancy drugs which are expensive um, and there are again barriers um, to care which which favour people um, in higher income settings particularly where you can design services that can deliver to outpatients intravenous medication because a lot of these medications are intravenous. Um, so, so I think there's there's a, a there's a lot of propensity for some of these um, drugs for COVID to um, exacerbate inequalities, and particularly to in some to some extent, if you think you know as a as a world, what could we do? How could we best spend our money to um, maximise the health of people against COVID? It would probably be in getting people vaccinated, wouldn't it? Um, I would think so. Vaccinated, yeah. Juan, sorry, Joe and I have yeah. been off at a tangent. What have you got to say about this? No, I was just thinking because um, I was trying to mix the interactive situation with uh, with uh, with the high risk, and I imagine the the 
the, the family doctor at the point of care thinking, well, this drug in non-severe COVID has been used in vaccinated people. So, so, but this one is vaccinated and boosted. So I need to reduce the risk of hospitalization like 90%. Okay. And now, but this person has asthma and is obese. So how do I multiply the risk? How what's the risk baseline risk? And based on that baseline risk, what the effectiveness is, and trying to, for the, for, just for the, the doctor at the point of care, deciding and choosing which patient would benefit the most. Um, You're going to, down so, a rabbit hole, basically. <laughs> yeah, I'm going down a rabbit hole. And I think that uh, that sort of all this indirective situation it sort of makes the uncertainty about, uh, for example, cost effectiveness. I imagine if you want to model cost effectiveness, it might be very difficult because if you have highly vaccinated people, then of course the absolute effect size might be very, very small. And then your, your cost effectiveness... Uh, ratio goes through the roof so I, I don't know I guess it would be very difficult for different countries to to make a certain whether they, this would be useful these drugs with the weak recommendations would be useful for the non-severe COVID patients uh, especially because they're coming in thousands everywhere so um yeah, um, very very problematic, and uh, people need to wrap their hands around how about how they will help help physicians not to make these calculations at the point of care. Next, we'll come to a kind of um, can I call this an kind of EBM tribal debate, Joe, <laughs> about um, trials and observational evidence, because we saw early on in COVID that there were some quick observational studies which sought to suggest that some interventions were associated with benefit or harm um, among people with COVID. And then later, some of these were followed by trials that produced arguably more definitive answers. Um, but there is kind of ongoing discussion around when you should use one form of evidence and when you should use another. And um, so I wondered, Joe, because this is your paper, not just your paper to present, but you actually wrote this paper, which was published in BMJ a few weeks ago. Um, as a very geeky clinician crossed with researcher, have you finally settled the debate on uh, observational research and trials. Well, Helen, I, I don't know what you're trying to do to my reputation by calling me <laughs> geeky. I mean, this is a very important study. <laughs> no, in, in, in seriousness, the, um, you know, we are really at a precipice uh, in the world of research right now to try to better understand how we can leverage all of the observational data sources that are increasingly available to us through better survey data, health system data, claims data, all integrated with each other, sometimes with genetic data, linked across registries and other cohorts. I mean, the, the world of data is getting bigger and stronger, and it's raised really interesting challenges for the world of researchers, the world of clinicians, the world of regulators, policymakers. When can we make decisions on the basis of observational data research versus randomized controlled trials? Because traditionally, we have all, you know, put down our money on the RCT. And I would say, you know, for years now, um, you know, FDA and other regulators like the EMA have been trying to figure out, like, 
you know, when do you require a clinical trial for uh, post-market approval as part of a safety surveillance? When, when can we, you know, use observational research? But this is probably the first time in a major pandemic people were sprinting to bring evidence to bear to inform patient care decisions where kind of everything was happening all at once, right? Usually what happens is, um, you know, we have an RCT and then maybe we have an observational study to look in a slightly different patient population or for a rare subgroup or we're sort of, you know, where that would be too rare in an individual RCT to observe. Or maybe we have an observational study that comes out of a cohort and that then informs an RCT. This was just chaos, right? We, you know, we had everybody doing everything all at the same time, everyone with the same ideas, and lots of patients uh, who were at risk of being infected or getting infected and trying to figure out what to do. So it's like into this world that we stepped in to say, ha, I wonder what we would find if we looked at the observational studies and the RCTs. Did they agree? Because obviously, Many people were pushing therapies on the basis of a single study, almost always a tiny RCT, sometimes a well-designed uh, well study, so often a poorly designed observational study, right? It was just kind of all things were happening. So what we did in this paper, and I'll just note that um, I was a middle author. It was really led by you know a superlative, uh, fantastic investigator, a meta-epidemiologist at Yale named Josh Wallach, working with an extraordinary medical student named Usman Manir. But what they did is they, along with many others, including a medical librarian at Yale and other colleagues, um, but we started actually with that living systematic review um, that, that's been in the, you know, in the BMJ. And we uh, kind of focused on three therapies that we knew had been studied a lot, um, hydroxychloroquine, uh, steroids and lopinavir, ritonavir. Yes, exactly. Um, and and we knew there would be a bunch of observational studies. We knew that there would be, be a bunch of RCTs. And so and we didn't know which order they were all happening. But we you know looked to see you know were they uh, were the treatment effects essentially aligned? And we we meta uh, you know we we searched, synthesized, and, and meta analyzed. When there was multiple observational studies and multiple RCTs, when there was one observational study and multiple RCTs, one uh, multiple observational studies, but just one RCT. And you know what we found is that for the vast majority of the comparisons, while uh, you know not perfect, they they actually aligned far more often than we expected, and particularly when. Um, we're looking at outcomes that are dichotomous, like do people die or not die, as opposed to like a continuous outcome that's just harder to be more precise around, which is like, you know, you know, what were the stage of disease uh, that you know, people were hospitalized at or something like that. So when you say, before we leave the weeds, they agree far more often than you expected. Give, it, give us an example of what you mean by that. So what when you know what we found is that when we like matched pairs of meta analyses of an observational study observational studies and RCTs, eighty percent of them agreed. So if the observational studies showed that hydroxychloroquine did not work to reduce mortality, the RCTs showed the same thing. That's that that's what I mean. Or if the um, observational study. Uh, you know, found that uh, compared to Leponavir, um, that there was a no difference in the risk for whether patients were going to require mechanical ventilation. The RCTs showed the same thing. That that's the way we were making these comparisons. 
So I guess it's kind of, it's a useful retrospective. I think what my brain is sort of hurting about is is the bigger question that people want to know, which is how should you use trials and how should you use observational studies? And I feel like in real time, that still feels quite unknowable. I, I do think in real time, we're gonna always try to be doing our best. I think one of the most important takeaways from our study is that when you have multiple observational studies and multiple RCTs, the likelihood of agreement was higher. And by that I mean, right, when we're not just one-offing it, not one study and then making a decision. And we know this. I mean, Juan should be speaking to this. He's the, the editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, right? I mean, in the hierarchy of evidence, you don't want to make decisions unless you have to um, on a single observational study and at, you know, or on a single RCT. You want there to be complementary evidence, right? From we want to validate, reproduce, see it in different populations, like in order to, for us to feel confident that we're actually providing the right care that's going to improve outcomes for our patients. Juan, I can see you smirking. Our audience can't, but maybe you want to jump in at this point. <laughs> I could see him like moving his mic. I was like, he's he's gearing up for this now. Whilst, whilst we've been listening, he's ready. Mr. EBM, Mr. Meta-analysis. What does this tell you, Juan? Yeah, I'm just extremely worried that someone's going to cite this paper saying we just ditched RCTs and start doing observational studies only. Uh, especially, I know that there's a warning in the paper. It says we should, but uh, observational studies might complement but should not replace evidence from collected from RCTs. But how do you feel, Joe, about uh, the possibility of, uh, of of this research being misinterpreted that way? Well, I, I think right now there's so much work being done to try to understand how to make use, appropriate use of, of kind of observational data analyses like this. I, I don't think anyone's going to be able to look at ours and say, ha, it all worked because so many assumptions went into the comparisons we made, right? In the sense like, first of all, someone had to have enough confidence to do an RCT, right? Like the, 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 the fruit is far more low hanging to do the observational study to see whether, you know, drug A works for condition B, right? Because maybe some people were, you know, used it or, you know, like, you know, did zinc, you know, when provided early on. Right? We have this observational data because, you know, we know who got zinc in the hospital, blah, 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 right? Like the, the standard to that or the sort of to get over in order to do the RCT, it has to be very plausible that there's going to be a treatment effect. It's not going to be dangerous and so on. So so none of those uh, kind of out, more outlandish uh, comparisons are here, right? Yeah, let's have more of the limitations, Joe. Come on, <laughs> trash your own paper. Oh, that's so, I, how can I, you guys can trash my paper. There, there, there's plenty There's plenty of it's criticism. It's more graceful if we let you do it yourself. <laughs> um, so, so I think, you know, so the sample we're starting with are, are you know, treatments that were considered to be robust enough that they should be studied in a trial, not just in an observational study. And then not only that, but, you know, w you know, were studied multiple times, right? Because we were we started with not every therapy that was in the living systematic review, of which there are dozens upon dozens. We looked at the three that had been studied in the most trials, right? So we're, we're sort of looking at the cream of the crop already. 
And even still, right, this cream of the crop, these were based on the sort of assumptions early on in the pandemic, particularly like, you know, the hydroxychloroquine and the, the, the Laponavir, right, that, that, that they were going to, and corticosteroids too, that they were going to work, right? And that's why they were studied by so many different people in so many different settings. And most of them did not work. They did not work for the endpoints that, that were mostly collected. And in part, that's part why I think, you know, our, our, our study provides that kind of reassurance. Okay, the observational studies when meta-analyzed came to basically the same conclusions as the RCTs. So um, I do believe, I mean, in hindsight, the problem is it's hindsight, right? And that, uh, that uh, for example, in EBM, we always use the, uh, the example of hormone replacement therapy of the observational uh, data and the RCT data being conflicted. But then uh, the reanalysis of the observational studies on hormone replacement therapies yielded similar results to the RCTs. Uh, so I think that it it's, um, it always come, boils down to what's the what's the the the, the quality and the on uh, how rigorous each of the study was conducted, right? And, and even for trials, for 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 example, for, for the situation for ivermectin, there were trials, many trials, but they were very very problematic. So at the end, we have to look at each study in in their value and and praise. Uh, their quality, right? Uh, it's uh, not uh, only the hierarchy. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, and, and obviously, without question, I mean, it, what we're seeing over time actually are that, in some respects, particularly when you can get at the information that's needed to make the populations similar between the observational study and an RCT, because lots of times the inclusion exclusion criteria that are used for a trial cannot be done. We're using observational data. There's not, there's not always cancer stage. There's not always symptom or functional status. There's not always, you know, other information that's being used or prior history of treatments that are, you know, that are used to inform kind of who gets into the trial. So, you know, that makes it difficult to say, you know, whether to use, you know, one or the other when you're making that comparison. Uh, but sometimes you can, right? There was just actually a, uh, you know, a big initiative that was reported out on uh, where the FDA had a group at Harvard try to duplicate the results of 50 you know, important clinical trials that have been used as part of approval decisions. Well, and so first of all, you can never actually use observational data for an, an, an initial approval decision because not enough people are using the drug to, you know, do kind of observational research anyways. You have to do a trial. That's because it's not yet out and, mar and available and accessed on the market. But once it is, you know, thinking about secondary indications, I, I think you're right. For the most part, we do find good agreement when we can, when we can create populations that are the same. And that's why... The key is they're complementary, right? It's one does not replace the other. We can learn about different things. We can certainly, in, among a larger patient population, um, with you, you using claims data or whatnot, maybe have a better understanding of safety that you couldn't get out of a trial. Um, but other things, you really need a trial to figure out. Uh, you know, if it's going to be something that's not in health system data, like patient reported outcome measures or other survey information. So Helen, I, you got to stop me because I could go on and on and on talking about this. <laughs> I this am is about why, I guess you. I am a geek. We, we uh, can cut it when you said that RCTs are still needed. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly back to the US. Uh, the paper that you've picked out, Juan, um, which is about myocardial infarction, begins with this uh, quote. 
United States spends more on healthcare and has worse health outcomes than any other high-income country. Um, and when you hear those kind of statistics, uh, which are pretty broad brush, it's often um, interesting to think what might be behind them. And these authors seem to have uh, begun um, trying to think about um, some of the things that underlie those big picture statistics by looking at a common condition, which um, is reasonably easy to diagnose. There's always debate about how to diagnose things, isn't there? And um, to look at how um, management and outcomes of that condition, which was myocardial infarction, might vary between countries. Um, Juan, tell us a bit more about the paper. Yeah, um, so this paper was a retrospective cohort study uh, from a consortium of countries, the US, Canada, England, the Netherlands, Israel, and Taiwan. And they looked at the data from people admitted with ST and non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, and um, they analyzed which treatment they received. Basically, if they received PCI or um, coronary bypass grafting. And uh, to summarize the paper, basically they uh, find that uh, there's a great variation in, in how these procedures are used for each of these conditions. For instance, for uh, ST elevation myocardial infarction, in the highest use of PCI was in the US and Canada, 63% and 67%, and the lowest use in England and the Netherlands, 40% and 49%. Um, and also there's variation in, in bypass uh, grafting surgery. The U.S. had the highest uh, use of, of coronary by, artery bypass grafting surgery. And uh, England and Netherlands had uh, one of the lowest. And not only that, but there was a different pattern. For example, some of them were more in hospital and, so, and, and in England and Netherlands for was uh, these procedures were indicated after discharge. And beyond looking at this variation of practice, they also looked at, at the outcomes. And interestingly enough, uh, so the U.S. had, um, for example, had one of the worst outcomes for ST ele elevation and myocardial infarction, uh, compared, for example, if you want to compare two countries uh, with England. So... Um, my first take on the on this paper is uh, whereas we can interpret it many different ways. Are we doing too much PCI? Are we doing too little PCI in some other countries? Are we doing too much surgery? Are we doing less surgery? Is that that um, perhaps uh, we we cannot draw a straight conclusion from from that? But it, it did trigger me to thinking this book by Ar Archie Cochran. You know I'm a fan of Archie Cochran. You should say, Juan, for people who don't know, that Archie Cochran founded the Cochrane Collaboration and the Cochrane yeah. Library and Cochrane Systematic Reviews all sort of have his name in honour. So yeah. Yeah, big, yeah. big hero of EBM and yours, clearly. I can tell by your big smile. Yeah. So, um, and in, and he had this, this chapter in this book, he was written in the late 70s, where he talked about how um, there were different rates of hospitalization of ischemic heart disease. Of course, that, that was a different world. And people sometimes were managed at, at their homes. They, they were sent to their homes for rest or on, and some of them were hospitalized. And he said, why are some people being hospitalized in a coronary unit and some people are being sent home? 
And why are people in Scotland staying more time in, in the hospital and some people are being discharged very early? So he looked at this issue of variation of care and how this affects outcomes. And I, I, I see that this paper brings out this theme again. And, uh, and, and when you have, of course, you have evidence of variation and then you have evidence of the effectiveness of each of the interventions. And once you have those two, you can start trying to figure out, so what's going on here? Are we, apply, the, the, if we have evidence that for some patients that are eligible for percutaneous uh, treatments, are they receiving it? Are the people who are receiving surgery are the ones that are most the ones that are benefiting the most, and and so there so we have this gap in what is the evidence tells us and what is happening in practice, and and this paper is trying to highlight that and I thought that it was very super super useful. Joe, you you thought this would be an interesting one to talk about as well. What what um, piqued your interest? Well. Observational data? No, just kidding, Helen. <laughs> I, I just thought this was, you know, so useful. It's very difficult to try to compare uh, populations in different countries uh, around healthcare utilization metrics, not just, you know, kind of mortality rates, which, you know, we obviously see for many countries kind of reported annually or maybe like global burden of disease surveys. But in this case, you know, they, they, took advantage of the fact that they could get data from six different countries, and not just at one point in time, but they were able to look at trends from 2011 to 2017 and see how things have been changing and what that might mean. And, you know, I think we typically uh, think about the U.S. as being, you know, highly interventional. We provide as, you know, more care, you know, evidence be damned, right? And, you know, it's difficult necessarily to know kind of where we stand next to our peers. And then in this case, um, it provides really interesting evidence that, you know, CAF and PCI use is much higher, um, you know, and where it's lower in England and the Netherlands. But we don't see that the patients in England and the Netherlands are necessarily doing worse in terms of mortality rates and readmission rates. In fact, those are higher still um, in the U.S. and Canada at places where, you know, the, the procedural rates are, are, are you know, w- well above those of the other countries. Um, so so and one, on the one hand, like, what do you do with this? Well, it's kind of food for thought for policymakers, for regulators, for professional guidelines, because it allows them to reflect on whether their guidances and their healthcare systems and their planning are actually providing adequate care and reassurance that, you know, more is not always better, um, particularly in this context. It's not as if, you know, everybody being able to get, uh, you know, a PCI uh, earlier uh, in North America or in Taiwan is leading to, to lower mortality rates. I'm glad that you brought in the relevance there, Joe, because it felt like a bit of a academically interesting comparison. But of course, setting in context why it's useful to compare between countries to then think, well, are you are you doing not necessarily are you doing better or worse, but just looking at those comparisons more holistically to think what's happening in those locations and what's happening um, where I am and are we doing as best as we can? And it sets sets off really i think what is my favorite thing which is discussion really is <laughs> um or, or perhaps some more research i mean if you were going to take this um research demonstrating this variation and then think to say well what's behind it and does that matter um what do you think the next steps would be 
I, I think that I, I also I like this uh, too much medicine flavor that the paper brings, and I would inter- it would be interesting to look deeper into how this higher use of these interventions in the U.S. might be related to worse patient outcomes. Is it that that uh, they're not receiving it the right patients, or or is it uh, the timing in which they're receiving these interventions? Is it too early? Because in, for example, in England, it was some of these interventions were deferred, um, and uh, and 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 I would especially like to to look at what is called um, adequation of care in terms of the of all the implementation and the cascade of implementing, for example, guidelines. And also, this also relates to the research on what are the incentives in in the U.S. system to do this uh, these interventions, and whether the incentives that the, the health system has is affecting patients' outcome, which would be very worrying if that is the case. Yeah, and it's very difficult to get at it, right? Because it's in you know, analysis like this, it's very ecological, right? You know, they're just looking at populations, your know, rates, and trying to you know draw some some kind of implications or judgments from it. Um, but you can imagine, I mean, all, every, you know, healthcare procedure or treatment or, you know, has the potential for benefit, but it also has the potential for harm. But we have to be mindful, uh, you know, when we're making decisions for patients that more is not always better. Well, that's all we've got time for today. You can find all the papers that we've been discussing online. Do get in touch with us if you've got any feedback or requests for what we might cover next time. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. For now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Thanks for listening and take care out there.